That's good stuff, guys. That's good stuff. If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to turn to two places. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 5, uh, and then toward the end, we're going to be in Acts 5. Um, don't, don't read ahead in Acts 5. It might spoil everything that happens in Luke 5. Um, so just sit tight, all right? We're releasing episodes weekly now. Um, so we, we've been uh, kind of back in our journey through the Gospel of Luke these these past two weeks, which is really, it's springboarded by a proclamation that Jesus makes concerning uh, A, himself, and then uh, B, his mission, which is really, it's highlighted in Isaiah 61. And so, so the way this works is, in fact, much of the pursuit of the Gospels uh, is revealing what's, what's kind of always been uh, in the anticipation and really the expectation of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, I heard it said this way by B.B. Warfield years and years and years and years ago. Um, when he explains how the Old Testament is, is like a room that is fully furnished, uh, but it's dimly lit. And it's not until Jesus enters the story that his light exposes what has always been there. And so, so, as, um, and so, so Jesus comes in and he's teaching in the synagogue when we opened in Luke 4, this series where uh, Jesus is teaching and he steps up to the pulpit. Someone hands him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He makes his way down to what we call the 61st chapter and he proclaims these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what, this is what Jesus says he's come to do, and as we walk in the Gospels, this is what Jesus fulfills. And so we said there's a lot of different ways that the church can try to interpret those words, but, but by and large, they talk about what Jesus has done for us. And so, so when we get to worship through song, that's what we get to celebrate. That's what we get to say as, as we get to declare that we're prisoners no more because death was defeated and our life began. And, and so, so after reading these words, he sits down and, and with all eyes on him, he declares to them that, that today, in that moment of history, those words... Are fulfilled, and it's this dramatic revelation of a dramatic reading, which created a very dramatic response because Jesus has declared Himself the Messiah they've been waiting for, and the Messiah we have been able to encounter. And then last week we saw in in really three different ways how Jesus chose to exercise His authority as the Son of God. So, so our scene uh, was really in two scenes. He displays his authority in his teaching, uh, and then, then he explains his authority over the demons, and then he leaves the church, and he goes to uh, Peter's mother, uh, Peter's house, where his mother-in-law, and he heals her, uh, and he shows his, um, his authority over just physical ailments. And, and now what I stress then uh, I still stress today that, that there's this danger in believing that Jesus comes to be primarily one of those things. That, that he's just a teacher, or he's just an exorcist, or, or he's just a, a healer. And, and the reason he does these things is so that 
uh, when, when, when those who witness them and when those who hear about what he has done, uh, they will see this chief proclamation that he makes about himself, that when he says that he comes to do the will of the Father, to bring freedom to those of us who are trapped in sin, which leads to death separated from the Father. And, and so as we get into chapter 5, what we find is just, it's just packed full of these snapshots of, of who Jesus is. And then what we're going to spend time in for like the next three or so weeks, I think, um, is that we're, when we look at Jesus, what we're going to find is that his holiness is, is, more, is surprisingly more powerful than we will be tempted to think. Uh, in fact, when we typically think of of a holy person, uh, we think of someone who is separated. That's what the word holy means. It's set apart. And so we think of a person that's separated from everything that is unclean and morally wrong and, and displeasing to God. We think of a person that is set apart from sin and set toward a life that is, is pleasing uh, to God. And I think much of the time the holy person uh, can, can be known uh, more for... Uh, the things that they abstain from or, or uh, than what they stand for. You with there? Um, that, that in their abstinence, they, uh, we come to regard them as, as holy. And now, when we see Jesus, we see something more than that kind of holiness. Uh, in fact, I think one of the questions that, that needs to be brought to the table is, is what if there's more to it than that? What if, what if there's a, another kind of holiness that exists? Or, or better yet, a more complete kind of holiness. That, that, that what if, what if uh, we define holiness not so much by what it avoids or, or by religious activity or habits. What if, what if there exists a holiness that, that is both transcendent and then transformative? Uh, and so, suppose there's a holiness that makes contact with the world and by that contact, transforms it and now if you remember last week when uh the demon shows up at the church service uh the thing that he says to jesus is is we know i know who you are you are the holy one of god and so so and i think it's this type of transformative holiness is what the bible puts on display as we look at what what Jesus does. Now, I unfairly did not give you many blanks, and so you'll have to pay it. I didn't give you any blanks today, uh, and so you'll have to pay attention the whole time without um, filling any blanks in. So, all right, but, but, but what we're going to find in the next, like, 32 verses are, are four different ways that, uh, that Jesus' holiness gets put on display. Okay, so, so today what we're going to find is that, that, that Jesus has a holiness that exposes us to ourselves. And then next week, and uh, we're going to see probably two of these things, that, that A, Jesus has a holiness that cleanses us before God, and then secondly, Jesus has a holiness uh, that, that legitimately forgives sins. And those are incredibly vital points for us to be able to, to worship Him. And then when we get to verse 27, we'll see that Jesus has a holiness that calls sinners to repentance. So in case you were wondering, as we make our way through chapter 5, what, what, where are we leading? We're leading to this, this simple thought. That the holiness of Jesus calls us to repentance. And now our, our relationship with that is what we typically struggle with. And so, so, so our text is going to begin 
with a fishing story that involves a miracle that sets the scene for a major life change in the heart of specifically one man, uh, and then this invitation of God-sized adventures uh, for at least three men. And so, so this is where we go. Let's go uh, chapter 5, verse 1, right? Because we ended in the last, chap- last verse of chapter 4. So here we go. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets and getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Okay, so today I'm going to use the word, I'm going to use the name Simon, and I'm going to use the name Peter, and they're interchangeable. All right, they're going to reference the same guy. But as I was trying to work on my notes all week long, I kept mixing them up. So I'm just going to let you know, same guy. All right, we're not talking about two people. Which was Simon's. He asked him, Jesus asked Simon to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out uh, into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Okay? So we follow along. This is what Jesus says. Hey, let's go fishing. Okay? Verse 5. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and, and we took nothing. But at your word, okay, you can circle those three words, uh, four words, at your word, but at your word, I will let down the nets. In verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Okay, so there's this incredible holy interruption in Simon Peter's life. Uh, in fact, there, there's very little expectation that he would have anticipated to end this day where it began for him. Uh, and I think that's typically the way God moves. That you don't, you, it, sometimes it comes as a sneak attack. And you're like, boy, I, I did not anticipate him to move in such an incredible way. And here we have, we have Jesus is preaching to the crowd and people are so eager. And I think of them as like a... Um, like a three-year-old who doesn't understand personal boundaries yet. And so when they talk to you, they want to talk to you like right here, right? And they want to just keep pressing and pressing and pressing. You're like, hey, man, personal bubble. Let's do that, right? So these people are so eager to hear Jesus, they start to crowd him, right? And, and as he's speaking, he keeps taking a step back. They keep coming. And eventually, it's as if they're moving him into the lake, all right? And so he finds the boat, and he commandeers it, and he steps in, and he starts to teach and the boat, which so happens to be Peter's, um, and, and as Jesus continues to speak, Simon continues to wash his nets. And now, in case you're wondering, they wash their nets to prevent them from uh, cracking uh, and breaking on them because this is their livelihood. All right? And so, so it seems right about this time, Simon's coming back to the boat to put the nets out to dry. And Jesus says, hey, man, you know those nets you've been cleaning? Um, let's take them out and use them again. And now two things are apparently out of the norm here. Uh, first thing being that, that it was common for fishermen to fish at night when the temperature was cooler. And then number two, it was typical for the fishermen uh, to fish in the shallows of the water because that's where the fish swam the most. Okay, so, so here, I, I say that to say this. Here what, here's what you have. You have Jesus, who's a carpenter by trade, uh, is telling Simon 
who is a fisherman by trade, after a long night of not catching anything, to do two things that you typically would not do. Okay? And so, so and I think I, I mentioned that because I think there's a few different ways to understand uh, Peter's response here. And then I tend to think when he says, at your word, I will let down the net. I think he's saying this because there's people surrounding him. And I think he's saying, listen, when this doesn't work, okay, this isn't on me. Right? Have you ever done that with God? Like, hey, hey, I hear you. But hey, right, if, if this doesn't work, it's not on me. It's on God. Right? So he, he looks at him and says, hey, guys, we're, we're going to work with the carpenter here. We're going to let him try to do it his way. Okay? But it's not on me. It's not on me. And, and it, it's like I'm, I'm not taking any responsibility for any of this. And as we're told, that the nets became so full that they are breaking and the boats began to sink. And, and as miraculous as, as this was, this isn't the greatest miracle in these 11 verses. It's not. In fact, uh, Jesus performs the miracle of the catching of the fish in order to catch Simon's heart. And, and this is what happens. Verse, verse number 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, okay, as he experiences all of this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, and this is what he says, okay, listen. He says, depart from me, for I am a, what's the word? Sinful man, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. So, so Peter did not expect to see what happens in verses 6 and 7. And they, they landed these two boats full of fish and they were sinking. And, and Peter and James and John, as we'll find out here in a moment, are experienced fishermen who experience something that they have never, something that's never happened before. And then something deeper happens to Peter. There's something more profound enters his mind that when Peter sees the ability of Jesus, he also sees his own heart. And when he does this, it, it takes him from, from bringing in fish to dropping to his knees and he's confessing sin. And in this moment, I think what happens, in this moment, Peter receives a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and, and the holiness of Jesus. And this is the greatest miracle of all. It's the greatest miracle of all. And I don't know, I don't know why preachers are so quick to spend the whole morning talking about bringing in fish. Because they are, right? If you spend any time in church, this is what we talk about. Like, the Lord brings in all these fish. And then we, we find ourselves in this, this moment of saying, whatever you need, God will provide. And that's very true. But that's not the greatest and the chief argument in these verses. The greatest chief argument is that when Peter sees Jesus, he's undone. But he's not undone to the sense of shame that leads to separation. He's undone because he sees the holiness of Jesus and he just wants to press in. And he just wants to press in. He's like, God, you're, you're so, he says, Jesus, you are so holy and magnificent that I have no right to be in your presence. This reminds me of this, this moment in, in, in Isaiah chapter 6. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorite and most challenging sets of, of verses. Uh, because Isaiah, I'll just read it to you. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
This is a vision Isaiah is having. He's high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. And he says, with each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he was flying. And, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then he says, as they say this, the foundations of the threshold shook. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response to this moment of seeing the holiness of God. He says, he says And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is a proper response to seeing the holiness of God. It is, there, is, there is never a moment in the Bible, and there's, I'll say this, there's never a moment in our lives where we will behold the glory and the holiness of God and be like, you know, I'm glad I'm on this team because, you know, he needs me. Never. Every single time we are undone, and I don't want to belabor, but I don't want to, I don't want to just fly past this. That, that seeing God in His holiness makes us aware of our sinfulness. And for some, this is a hard fact, uh, especially if, if, if you land believing that God's holiness reveals our sinfulness because God wants you to feel His displeasure and He wants to belittle you and He wants to beat you down. And I think if that's you, what you need to understand is that you have an incomplete view of who God is. In fact, this is one of the things on Wednesday nights that, that Swan's doing an incredible job talking to our teens about. He's like, you know, our view and the complete view that we have of God is imperative to pursuing Him. Because if we think that God reveals His holiness to make us feel um, uh, condemned, then, then we will never have a motivation. We will never see what He's offering us in Jesus. We won't. So, so because God reveals our sinfulness, He does so to expose how empty our lives are when we're trapped in, in sin. Because what sin does always bankrupts us so that God, so God reveals it to show this incredible richness that we can live in with Him. And He's willing to provide as, as a loving and a perfect Heavenly Father. And so I was, I was reading a commentator this pa- on this passage um, this week, and he said, you know, talking about... Uh, any, any objection that people have saying, okay, God isn't real, that, that God is a man-made um, thought um, so that we can control each other. Uh, he says this, like Sigmund Freud, it says that humans invented religion because they're afraid of the forces of nature. And so to seek some comfort and solace from the forces of nature, they begin to invent deities. And he says, I don't, I don't doubt that we have the capacity to do that, but if there is anything that scares me more than a hurricane and, a, and an earthquake, it's the holiness of God. If our religion were an invention born of fear, we would hardly be inclined to invent a holy God. Okay, so, so I, I say that because I think there's a real danger in the church today to create a version of a God that brings you all the benefits that, that a, the true God will give you, but removes holiness from it. 
because I, I don't I don't I don't need a holy God. I just need a God who will give me what I need and what I want. So when the holiness of God is is on display, it, it it's to draw us towards him like a light that reveals reveals our path and it reveals that he is so powerful and he overcomes anything which may lurk in the darkness baiting you off of that path. So his holiness, it draws us and it reveals that we are not equals, but but at the same time, we don't have to be enemies. We don't have to be. And so so the holiness of God is displayed and it woos us into a relationship with him because it's in that moment we become aware of how empty all other pursuits of our lives truly are. That it's, it's, this is what happens to Peter. He glimpses in Jesus the face of God. And, and from that vision, he comes down to see himself. And what he finds in himself is what we find in ourselves being sin. That's it. Like he's got no excuse, does he? He says, Jesus, you're, you're so incredible. Please just go. Like you don't, I don't deserve to see you. And he doesn't say it's because of this, it's because of that. He just says, this is where we're at. And now because he knows such a holy being as God, he knows he shouldn't be around, uh, that, kind of, that Jesus should not be around a sinful man. So he cries out, he says, depart from me, to which Jesus responds. Okay, and I want you to see this because this is so very important when it comes to how we come to God. Okay, for, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that had taken, right? They had taken, verse 9. Verse 10 says, And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, okay, what does he say? He says, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. In verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left almost everything, right? No? They left some things, No? They left everything. And then they did these things. They, they followed him. Okay, and this is, this is why we call the gospel good news around here. That here you have a holiness that comes to sinners rather than going away. Jesus says, just come join me. Here's a holiness that, that uses a confessing sinner in its mission. Here's a, a holiness that not only calls sinners, but commissions the sinner to become a fisher of men. Here's a, here's a holiness so stunningly beautiful that it causes a man to leave everything for its sake. It gives the former sinner a new purpose, a new direction, and a new call. And this is, this is good news for us today because Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and if you've spent much time in the church, surely you've heard this, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, so all, we all deserve God to go away from us. In fact, it's, it's in part, this is what hell is, right? It's this withdrawal of, the, of God's loving and kind presence that we all deserve hell because of our sin. And it's this, the acknowledgement of our sinfulness that begins uh, for us the goodness of the good news. For while we were still sinners, it says Christ died for us. That God sent his son to call us into his son's holiness where there is purpose and there is righteousness which is just simply right standing with the father so we only need one thing right we need we need confession that we are a sinner like peter 
So verse 11 says something very important to us. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. So the question is, where does this kind of following go? Where does it go? The Gospels and really the book of Acts, they serve as a telling of the adventures of the disciples as, that they followed Jesus into. In fact, uh, they will see more miracles. They will listen to more teachings. They will walk in the dust of Jesus' sandals. They will, they will at times try to protect him. They will try to defend him. They will, they will listen to Jesus explain the Father's heart and speak of a place that he's going to go to prepare for them. They're going to sit with him in, a, in an upper room and he's going to advise them that, that life is about to change in very, very real ways for them. Um, they, they, they will follow him into a garden where Jesus will be arrested and Peter will stand, the same Peter that, that says, depart from me, Lord. He will stand outside the temple during this pseudo court case and, and people will say, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he will deny him three different times and, and, and some will watch Jesus be crucified and the others will scatter. And then they'll assemble in another upper room because they've heard whispers that this tomb is empty and they're going to be shocked when Jesus appears behind their locked door. And the story will go from, their story goes from curiosity of who this guy is named Jesus to believing that he's the Messiah. The one who takes away the sins of the world. And that's that's, that's the invitation for every single one of us. So they follow Jesus. And guys, they follow him into the deep. They follow him so deep. And one place I was, I was reminded where they followed him was, was talked about in, in Acts chapter 5. See, I told you we'd get there. All right, so you didn't have to read ahead. But Acts chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to jump into verse 27. I don't, I don't think we have it on the screen. Um, but, but the other verses that kind of lead us is, is the apostles are doing what Jesus told them to do. They're going around and they're performing these, these signs and these wonders. And he's talking about Jesus to the people. And as a result, it says multitudes of men and, and women are... Um, added to the Lord daily, and, and, but, but it doesn't take long for the church to take notice, and, and the high priest rises up, and he's filled with jealousy, and he arrests the apostles, and he throws them into the public prison, and, and one of the uh, miraculous things happened, right, that night, the angel of the Lord comes in, and he opens the gates, uh, opens the prison doors, and, and brings them out, and so the apostles go to the temple, and they spoke to the people, and it says, all the words of this life. And so the high priest comes in hoping that, that a night in prison will sort them out. And he calls for them to come out of prison. And, and the, the guard comes in and is like, uh, about those guys. Um, they ain't there. And they're trying to figure it out. And then someone else says, they're actually in the temple. Uh, and this is where we pick it up. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given those who obey him. All right, are you tracking? Because the argument of the high priest is, hey, um, we asked y'all nicely not to talk about Jesus. <laughs> and Peter says, hey, we, we can't. We can't obey that. Because God's given us such a larger calling, such a greater commission. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the, in the council named Gamaliel, uh, I'm assuming I just said that perfectly. All right? A teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he's like, hey, let's, let's put them outside. Let's, let's talk as a group here. And he said, men of Israel, take care about what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, uh, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed were with him were scattered. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Right? So, so he says, he says, listen, he's like the voice of reasoning in a room where jealousy and hatred want the megaphone. And he ultimately says, sit tight and just, let's just see if this is from man or from God. Because if it's from one, it will fizzle out. If it's from God, you can't stop it anyway. So they took his advice. Sort of. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And verse 41. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Okay, I want you to hear this. Rejoicing, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So verse 41, it, it just, guys, it pins me. It puts me against the wall. Because after, after getting beat, right, while bloodied and bruised with bones cracked, these guys look at each other and worship breaks out. They do. In fact, they, they rejoice because they know that God is allowing them to suffer dishonor for his name. I think it's interesting that Luke uses the word dishonor because really it's just dishonor in the sight of man because it's not dishonor in the sight of God. Their names are being drugged through the mud in the church for the sake of the love of God, and this beating doesn't stop them. Not even for a moment. Every day, verse 42, every day in the temple and in the house, they teach and they preach that the Christ is Jesus. And so here, here's, here's where I've kind of been circling and chewing uh, this week. That we read these words about these men being beaten and the respo their response of rejoicing and many of us will conclude, that's a radical faith. It's radical. That, that, that some will, will aspire to it the same way that, they, that we kind of aspire to eat healthy, but we secretly have a candy bar in the car every day while going home. 
right? And then some of us will see this and we'll say, that's too radical. That's too far. God wouldn't demand so much of my life if he truly loved me. And the gift we have in being told what happens here is that, and really the gift of their response, is that these men are not radicalized and they're not misled. They're transformed by the glimpse of holiness. It's what it is. Like the church shouldn't read these moments and say, that's no way. That's, out, that's way out there. Those are for, those are for super Christians, right? They, these guys, they're not ma- masochists. They, they've seen the greatest treasure in a field, and in their joy of being found, they're willing to take it all on so that others can find the refuge that they have. And so any argument we build that God is being too mean or this is going too far for the sake of the gospel, we just get to say, no, it's not. Like, even to the death, it's not too far. Because we are being counted worthy to suffer dishonor in the name of Jesus. And I think we're we're tempted to think of places like Acts 5 as extreme faith for the super-Christians. And I think, guys, this is why we're getting our teeth kicked in by the enemy. It is. It's why the church is so weak at times. Because we don't want to grow a faith like this. We want to talk about a faith like this. We want to say that we want to have a faith like this. But the moment that, that, that the enemy presses in, or that God allows some suffering, we say, oh, no, 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 no. I was fine with it as long as it didn't hurt or feel uncomfortable or bring discomfort to me. I was just thinking, for, for some of us, the wind blows in the wrong direction, and we bail on adventures of the God size. And then, then we get upset with him, or, or we end up being bored with him, when what's happening is we aren't willing to engage in a life where the enemy's concerned about the gospel pouring out of you so much that the forces of hell rise up to attack the transforming work of Jesus in you. And what's happening is we aren't willing to engage in a life where the enemy is so concerned about the gospel pouring out of us that the forces of hell rise up to attack the transforming work of Jesus in us. I don't know if you ever read the, the C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters, but, but there's, this, there's this character in it named Wormwood, and he's a demon, and, and he's kind of been assigned a Christian, and, 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 and one of his advices from his superior is, is to try to keep his human busy in religion as a means to keep him from making any lasting change. That, that he would seek a life of both religion and comfort and, and get them lost in this. And so, so the question is, where do we start? Right? Where do we start on this? And I think if we start in the same place that Peter does while he's watching Jesus move around him in his boat, right? That, that we see the holiness of God, we catch a glimpse of our sinfulness, and we walk into the light of his salvation. That's what we do. Kelly sent this verse to us this week, and I, I, I found it to be very fitting that my mouth, this comes from Psalm 71, verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. All day long. And that's easy in, in Bible studies, that's easy on Sunday mornings, but when all hell breaks loose, 
And it's all pressing, and you're feeling the pain of it, and you're suffering for a purpose. Do our mouths fill with his praise? Is our inclination to declare his splendor in every single second of every single day? I think one of the most loving things God does, and so on, we can start wrapping this up. I'm sorry, I should have said that like, I don't know, five minutes ago. Um, that I think one of the most loving things God does for us is show his holiness and reveal our sinfulness. Okay, And religion will come in and say, you, when you see your sinfulness to God's holiness, it means God doesn't want you, and God doesn't love you, and God doesn't need you. And when the gospel says that God shows us our sinfulness, it's to show us how empty our lives are apart from him. And then secondly, how willingly he's how willing he is to take us back. And I think this response, guys, this response is taken from one glance of a guy on a boat. That's what this is. And I think I think seeing Jesus correctly creates in us a courageous and an adventurous life of purpose. It does. And the, I think the question that lingers, if, if you are a believer. Is, is whether your vision of Jesus moves you to rejoicing when hell comes against you, or is it too small that the circumstances of that discomfort shut you away from him? Okay, because that's what's going to happen with Peter. Like, he will die a painful death. He will suffer for Jesus in incredibly difficult ways. But there's not a moment that he says, I'm out. So I wonder about our faith. I do, because some of us, I, I see this, and I want to be honestly loving to you. Some of us can stand in the comfort of this space, in this room, and can stand alongside the saints and sing songs, but not sing from our heart. We just sing from our mouth. And we can create a life with God that is very safe and it's very PG and, and it's very boring. And it's not significant because we're not really pursuing God. We're pursuing the American dream as it collides with the Christian church. So I wonder about us, if, if, if we really are, if we really are, if I really am willing to walk away from seasons of my life where, where I rejoice. Because I know that, that God is leading me to a, the frontier. Where he's leading me to these places where only he can do the move. But yet he invites me into that adventure. I wonder if, if we are the kind of people willing to walk away with our teeth knocked out, smiling. Because we know the battle is worth the fight. I don't know. That's one of those things we can take a poll and we all raise our hands, and I'm sure it would be unanimous today, right? But are we willing to pursue Jesus over the pursuit of ourselves? I say that with love. 
I'm going to say that saying, go with God. And to catch a glimpse of his holiness and take that holiness serious when it comes to your holiness. Our desire this week is to love God by. Let me pray for us. And if you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. We'll have some people over here. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, if you've never glimpsed the holiness of God in Jesus' name, uh, let us tell you our story. Let us say, we got to sing that story earlier. That the, the story of our lives is that we are free, free forever. Amen. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. I pray that we would be very aware over these next few days and next few weeks of of the, the, just your holiness. I pray that you would bring us to these moments where, where we are like Peter in a boat, not expecting you to do anything, but then you perform a miracle in our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would be able to take all of our guilt and all of our shame and And for some, that we would recommit our hearts to you. And for others, that we would, for the first time, commit our hearts to you. Father, I pray you would just, just put inside our spirits a desire to please you in such a way that the enemy even notices that we exist. And Father, we pray for the courage when he steps into the opposition. That your spirit would sustain us. That as your word says, your light invades the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, I pray we would be the kind of people worthy to suffer dishonor for your name. And this only happens, Father, you moving in us, around us, and through us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
guys have a blessed week. You're dismissed.